the title of today's sermon is, is A Servant's Heart. John the Baptist is a minister of Jesus Christ. And, and at one point or another in our life, we're all in that boat, aren't we? And it's not just about those who minister, but really what we see in this passage today is about discipleship. It's about what it means to have the heart of a disciple, what it means to have a heart of a servant, what it means to serve God. And we're going to be looking at that truth today. So open up your Bibles to John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. According to educator Eads Gilbert, getting a good education for their children is not the only factor that is motivating some of today's parents to enroll their children in very elite schools. During her 15 years as headmistress of Spence, which is a prestigious Upper East Side girls' school in New York City, Ms. Gilbert has seen an increasing number of parents using their children's education for their own benefit. Is that a, is that a shock to people? It seems that many parents having a, a child, for many parents, having a child admitted into a prestigious school is not only important for the child's sake, but also offers enormous social advantages for the parents. Contacts made in an elite elementary school context give the parents a leg up in the social scene. This mixed parental motivation has had a dramatic impact on the mission and the purpose of children's education. Kind of messes things up about a lot. Miss Gilbert knows parents who have applied to her kindergarten because the children of Sigourney Weaver, Michael Bloomberg, and Katie Carrick all had kids who attended there. The children of, of them were going into the same class. Parents would lobby for their seven-year-olds to be assigned classes with these children whose parents are rich and prominent in hopes that these parents would develop a friendship, of course, to give these other parents an advantage. Parents would jockey to volunteer for parental committees that would give them the best contacts. It's degenerated, she said, to the point where a back-to-school night has taken the atmosphere of a competitive Park Avenue cocktail party. Can you believe it? It's sad, the author goes on to say, when people have mixed motivations in life and in sending their children to school and doing so for what? For this person right here. It's even more sad when we do it in church. When we have mixed motivations in serving God, when we serve God or we become disciples or whatever it is about our lives that we make it about us and we make it about establishing our own little kingdoms, having advantage in society, bringing the attention and glory to ourselves. Last week we touched on, well, not really touched on because it was like a 54-minute sermon. So we dove into the uh, mission of Jesus Christ, the motivation, the purpose of that mission. 
the effects and the results, and now John the evangelist turns his attention to the forerunner of that mission once again. And what John, the gospel writer, does is he allows John the Baptist to do what he's really doing at this point in time in his life. Fade off the scene. Bid his farewell. That's exactly what John is doing this. He's in this passage. He is saying, oh, thank you. God approves right now. (laughs) He's making room for someone much better. Jesus. He's saying goodbye because John has fulfilled his calling. His time has come and he is moving off center stage for Jesus Christ. And John... The Baptist is absolutely fine with that. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist welcomes it. He welcomes it because he has a true servant's heart. That's why. His ministry, his calling, as a matter of fact, his entire life is not about John the Baptist. It's about Jesus Christ. Here we get to see John's view of himself in relationship to Jesus and the characteristics of his calling. And these characteristics are fundamental in the life of of every single one of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ. They apply to all of us who are listening today. They are very practical and easy to understand, which I think is what makes them a little harder. i got to tell you something. I say this quite often, but I especially say this with a passage like this. This is really hard for me to stand up here and preach to you about what it means to have a servant's heart when I don't always have a servant's heart. So I don't want you to get the impression that I haven't been preaching this sermon to myself the entire week, because I have, and I'll be preaching it to myself the rest of my life. But what we see here is really a a motivation and the true core of our heart in service and in discipleship With Jesus Christ. I've broken this down into four characteristics of a servant's heart. So the first characteristic of a servant's heart is a servant's heart is not jealous. Verses 22 through 26. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing John also was baptizing in Aon near Salim because there was much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown in prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. So our author, John, there's a lot of Johns going on here, kind of like there's a lot of Marks in this church, a lot of Johns in the New Testament. Our author, John, the evangelist, is setting the stage for us. And what's he setting the stage? What What is this passage all about? Two people baptizing, right? You've got two people baptizing, and what's interesting is that they, they're, kinda, they're, they're not really near each other. It's not like, 
Jesus had set up camp right down the street from John. We're not really sure where Aon near Salim is, uh, but it is north of where Jesus would have been. So even though we weren't sure where it is, we know that John's disciples heard something about Jesus baptizing from a Jew. It doesn't really give us the whole content of what this discussion about purification was, but what what I think happened and what many commentators think happened is that this Jew was baptized by Jesus, ran into John's disciples, and he claims the superiority of Jesus's baptism, which is right. And we find out later, really, that it's not Jesus that's baptizing, but his disciples. But Jesus is baptism, and and the disciples are baptizing in water as still the repentance of sins and that representation of that cleansing. And also, when you were baptized in that culture, people were baptized by teachers all the time. It meant you were going to follow that individual. That that individual is now your teacher, now your leader. Um, but also, we know that Jesus spoke, John spoke of Jesus' baptism as being greater earlier because he's going to do what? Baptize us in the Holy Spirit. So all of this is pointing to Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. And John's disciples don't want to admit to that. So they get into this discussion and really they instigate a conflict between John the Baptist and Jesus. And they're like, hey, John, check this out, man. You remember that guy you were talking about? Guess what he's doing? He's baptizing. And everybody is coming to him. Do you think everyone's coming to him? No. Are they exaggerating? Yes. Why are they exaggerating? Because they're jealous. Absolutely jealous of Jesus's success. Henry Varley is best known as the man who stated to Dwight Moody, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man who is fully committed to him. Moody sought to be that man and went on to become the world's most prominent evangelist of his day. What is not so well known about Mr. Varley is that he himself was a powerful evangelist, and preacher, and had great success. But he faced an intense battle with jealousy. When one day another preacher came into the neighborhood, began preaching, and having great success, and actually started drawing some of Varley's members away from him. What do you think Mr. Varley wanted to do? I'm going to shut that guy down. He talks about this and he felt a a deep resentment toward that other minister and later divulged this. I shall never forget the sense of guilt and sin that possessed me over this business. I was absolutely miserable. What I was practically saying to the Lord Jesus was this. Unless the prosperity of your church and people comes in this neighborhood by me, success had better not come at all. Varley loved the Lord Jesus, didn't he? He was sincere, a good heart, wanted to fulfill his ministry and his calling. But when someone else comes in and creeps in his territory, he is what? Jealous. And even though we're pitching two 
ministers against each other. We do this very same thing when we get jealous of someone else's gifting, someone else's ministries, or someone else's success. We are actually pitching ourselves against Jesus Christ. Because the ultimate goal of ministry, the ultimate goal of serving, isn't to make disciples of us, is it? The ultimate goal of serving is to make disciples of Jesus, is to bring people to Jesus. And if people are coming to Jesus, whether it's through Galilee Church or the church down the road, we should be happy, shouldn't we? I'm not all the time. (laughs) I'll be really, really honest with you. This one hit me like a sledgehammer in the face. Because... This is natural, like in, in sin-wise, right? We, we naturally get jealous when other people are more successful. And then we make it a game about what? Numbers and about ourselves. Taking the focus off of Jesus and placing it right here on this person. This is Jealousy 101. John's disciples come to him and they actually instigate a fight. They're like, John, what are you going to do about it? We can't have this guy building up all these disciples. What are you going to do? And what happens when we get jealous is we get a little crazy. We get envious, right? We want to do better. So we're like, ah, you know what? I'm going to do something maybe I wouldn't have done before. Because why? I want more people in my church. We look at their ice cream cone like this little kid. And look, he's like, it's all over them. That girl's got it on her face. She's like, that kid's like, Mom, what happened, Mom? Why am I bad? Am I being punished, Mom? And that little girl's just eating enough. She doesn't even recognize that guy's next to her right now. She has no idea. She's just doing what's in front of her, right? What she's been given. And that's what happens. We look and we're not satisfied with what God has given us right here. We don't work with the people that we have. And this is hard for for churches and for ministries and for pastors. You know, we want to be sensitive too that when we go and we meet with other churches or other ministers and stuff like that, we don't want to be like throwing it out there like, hey, we got 4,000. You have 40? Oh, Oh, I'll pray for you. I'm sorry. You want to be sensitive to that. But what happens is you get jealous, you get envious, and then you do crazy things. So maybe John, John's disciples come up and they're like, John, we got the best idea for you to get more baptisms going on here. We got, we got a great idea. You can't just dunk them anymore, John. What, what you need to do, John, is you, we're going to build you a tower. You're going to jump off the tower and then land on this, this blob thing. This is called a blob launcher. And then launch people into the water. And as they're going down, John, you're going to be like, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right? Crazy? That's what happens, isn't it? Comparing leads to despairing. In desperate measures, making life about us and our little empires. All about numbers, not about Jesus. 
John isn't that way because John knows something that is absolutely fundamental in this second characteristic. He knows it's all from God. The success, the fruit of our ministry, the growth of our church, the giftings that we have, everything in life is all from God. He gives to whom he pleases and he takes away also. Verse 27, listen to how John responds to it. He doesn't say, hey, let's buy a blob launcher. He says this, a man can receive absolutely nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Want a quick answer to pride? Remember this truth constantly. Why am I up here today? Why am I standing before you? Why do, we, why do I have people listening to me? Why can I preach? Is it because I'm something special? Is it because I worked so hard? I have all these wonderful gifts and talents? No, it's not about that at all. It's because God had grace on my life. Every single thing that we have, our growth, our success, our blessing in life, our giftings, our talents, and this stretches beyond church ministry, folks. It's all because he's had grace on us. That levels the playing field for absolutely everyone. We can't look at someone else and be jealous because that was what God gave them. Whether John's talking about himself or Jesus, I think it's intentionally ambiguous because he's basically saying it doesn't matter. My ministry grew because of God. Jesus is growing now because that's God's plan. That's his plan for his life. John submits to this divine plan throughout his entire life. He's fine with it. And John isn't just saying this to feign humility. This, is, this, this John knew from the get-go. He knew it. He knew what he was called to do. And he knew that God was the one who was going to bless it, no matter what we do. It's up to God. Pastor walks into a church all alone. He felt an overwhelming sense of God's holiness. So he went to the front. He knelt down at the altar around, he began to beat himself on the chest, crying out, oh Lord, I am nothing. A few moments later, the minister of music entered. She too felt an overwhelming sense of God's presence and of God's holiness and seeing the pastor at the altar, she went and knelt down beside him and she began to strike her chest and say, oh Lord, I am nothing. I am nothing. It happened that the whole staff, one by one, began coming in. The minister of recreation, minister of education. they got a big staff, don't they? Big church. I'm jealous. All kneeling at the altar, beating their chest, crying their nothingness. A little while later, church custodian walks in, got caught up in the revival as well. He comes and he Needs beside, kneels beside all the colleagues, began beating on his chest, adding to the refrain, Oh Lord, I am nothing. 
I am nothing. At that moment, pastor looks up at the janitor, nudges the minister of music, says, oh, look who thinks they're nothing. <laughs> you know why? Because he thought he was more of a nothing than that guy. <laughs> Folks, there is a lot of false humility in Christianity sometimes. Outwardly portraying one thing, but inwardly believing another. It is extremely dangerous in all aspects of life that we begin to think that we are the ones responsible for our success. Forgetting God's grace and begin to compare ourselves with everyone else around us. There was a man who did this very thing, wasn't it? Remember this guy? Nebi? Little Nebuchadnezzar. What does he do? Goes up to the palace. He, he looks around. He says, is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by what? By my mighty power and for my glory and majesty? And we look at that and we say, ah, we're not going to do stuff like that. But we, we tore the palaces in our brains all the time, don't we? Oh, yeah, hey, I'm awesome. I'm pretty cool, yeah. Look at what I've done for myself. Look at all the things that I have. And we can look at churches and ministry the same way. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? God said, hey, all right, you want to see what happens when, when I don't give you anything? Boom. You can't even brush your teeth, brother. That's God's grace. You can't even comb your hair. You're an animal. That's what happens when I withdraw from you, when I don't give you anything. Whatever it is, we begin to think that the success of it, the gifts and the talents to do it originate with us and we become just like little Nebi, walking around the roof of our kingdoms and boasting in what we have done. It is a danger that John avoided. It's a danger for all of us. Disciples know who it comes from. Growth and gifts are from God's grace. That's it. The blessings, the prosperity, whatever it is, it's from him. Commentator says, if anyone could have easily fallen into the trap of pride, it was John the Baptist. Who else in human history, apart from Jesus himself, could claim that they were filled with the Holy Spirit while still in their mother's womb? No one else in human history had the important role of being the forerunner of the Messiah. John enjoyed immediate and very popular success. All of Jerusalem, Judea, and those from surrounding areas were going out to him in the wilderness to confess their sins and be baptized. John's answer reveals what he has known all along from God. It is all a gift. Do you want to remain humble? Repeat this. My preaching, the growth of this church, your ministry, whatever it may be, it is all a gift from God and it is all part of God's, from God's grace. 
Remember what Paul said to Corinthians when they start boasting? He just reminds them. He just shoots that dart right at them. Hey, what are you boasting about as if you had not what? Received it. And that's what we begin to do. We think we're special. A man has absolutely nothing unless it is given to him by God. And John knows this. And the ministry and the results were part of God's plan. And now that plan is moving on to Jesus. And John is absolutely fine with it. Our job as disciples is not numbers or success the way that we think of success. Faithfulness is success, isn't it? Our job is to be faithful. That's it. We are called to follow Jesus and glorify him in the realm, in the work that he has given us to do. And in the end, he says who's successful. So what's most important? We don't hang on to a ministry because we want to. You know, one day, if I'm getting too old, I can't even put two words together, just pull me off here. It's not about that. It's not about that. It's about being faithful and knowing when God is moving on to something else. Saying, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm with you, Lord. Because if we have our own agendas, we're going to put those ahead of his. And that's disaster. What is happening between Jesus and John is God's divine plan. And you and I have to remain subordinate to that, no matter what it is in life. He may not have us in ministry at a certain season. He may not have us doing a job we want to do for a certain season. Whatever it is, we submit. And it's in that we're being faithful. It's in that he's going to work. And it's in that he's glorified. John is fine with what is happening because John came for someone else. John knew who he was and John knew who he wasn't, which leads us to our third characteristic a servant's heart disdains deification, verse 28. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. I chose the word disdain because it kind of packs a little bit more of a punch than just deny, right? Because we can deny... Outwardly, I'm not Jesus, I'm not Jesus. And inwardly, we're like, man, I'm awesome, I'm great. And be that little Nebuchadnezzar. Disdain's deification means that I am going to completely avoid being put on a pedestal and take the place of Jesus Christ. We should hate that. The only thing that you and I should be jealous of is when Jesus isn't getting the glory. That's, that's what we should be jealous of. We should steer very clear of having people overly dependent on us and not so much on God. John comes right out and he says, look, I know who I am. I was sent ahead of him. I have a purpose. I have a mission and that mission is to point people 
to the real Messiah. But we all can have these delusions of grandeur, can't we? Psychologist Milton Rokich wrote a book called The Three Christs of Ysplanti. He described his attempts to treat three patients at a psychiatric hospital in Ysplanti, Michigan, who suffered from delusions of grandeur. Each of these people, individuals, believed that he was unique among humans, that he had been called to save the world and that he was the Messiah. They had a full-blown case of grandiosity in the purest form. Rokich found it difficult to break through to help the patients accept the truth of their real identity. Sounds like the majority of humans in the world. So he decided to put three into a little community together. He put these little guys, these little messiahs, can we imagine what's going to happen? To see if that could help them dent this delusion, a kind of messianic 12-step recovery group. I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that one. This led to some interesting conversations. One would claim, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. Rokich, the doctor, would ask, how do you know that? He would respond, God told me. What did the other one say? I didn't tell you any such thing. Imagine, no, I didn't. I never said that to you. He said every once in a while they got a glimmer of reality, but never deep or for so long. He said the greatest progress was made when he put them together. Crazy idea. Taking a group of deluded would-be messiahs and putting them in a community to see if they could be cured. It's been done before. By who? Jesus. A reasoning, a discussion arose among them as to who is the greatest. What's the cure? Jesus is, isn't it? Knowing He's the Messiah. Knowing that our purpose in life is not to point people to ourselves, is not to create disciples of ourselves. Our purpose in life is to point people to Him. That's our job. Folks, right now, Christianity is full of celebrity pastors and ministries. They are everywhere. This isn't just contained to a psychiatric hospital in Ysplanti, Michigan. And what is sad about what is happening in Christianity with these individuals is not just their hunger for power and fame and for worship, but that there are sincere believers that are enabling and allowing this to happen. Building these people up as messiahs. There's one that I saw coming down the road from years and years ago, and this person makes the stage, and they are no longer on that stage anymore, but they had a following of 
14,000 people. 14,000 people had churches all over the place. This is what this individual said to his leaders in a conference regarding how you treat people that disagree with their mission. He says this, too many guys waste too much time trying to move stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people. I'm all about blessed subtraction. He said, there's a pile of dead bodies behind our church bus, chuckle, chuckle. And by God's grace, it'll be a mountain when we're done. This is a pastor, an evangelical pastor talking to his congregation. You're either on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options, but the bus ain't going to stop. He charged his leaders that their main role was to bring people through the door so that he could preach to them because he was more effective. They had to bring him through the door because he couldn't fit through it. His head was too big. He called himself the brand of the church. This is what happens when we begin to think that ministry or whatever it is cannot happen without us. And we make it all about us. We build our own little kingdoms, pointing people to ourselves instead of Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. I, it's good to be needed. And I want to be needed as a pastor, and I'm sure you want to be needed in your respective ministries. That's natural. And it's good to be sought after for good reasons, right? Paul tells us that. But this is taken to an unhealthy level when we make life and ministry or work or whatever it is about us, and we think that these things cannot continue without us, or we think that you and I know the best way to do things. And what do we do? We take the wheel of the bus and we run people over. If we're the type of person that's easily getting offended or sensitive to the criticism of others in our ministries or our areas of life, if we, if we tend to shy away from people that challenge us or, or have a different personality than us or, or cause us to think differently about things, that might be telling us something about who we think we are. I, I, I propose ideas to the elders all the time. If I was sensitive, I probably wouldn't be here today because they're shooting down things left and right. Hey, you're, Labaz, you're crazy. Can you not say that? And I get that. So I, we, we, we're here to work together. Galilee is not Pastor Mark's church. It's our church. As a matter of fact, it's the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one driving the bus. He's going to steer the bus where he wants to steer the bus. He's the Messiah. We are not. Remember we talked about getting the tattoo, Romans 8.1, right there, right? Therefore, there is no condemnation. Another tattoo. We're going to be one tatted church by the end of this sermon series. Here's another one. I'm not the Messiah. Wake up every morning. And if we have those two tattoos spiritually written on our arms, therefore, there is no condemnation. I am not the Messiah. We're going to be fine. You'll be fine. 
But we need to remind ourselves of that, don't we? I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Savior. My job here and our job as Christians is to lead people to Jesus. He's the one who's going to save them. Hey, come here. I got someone you need to meet. I'm going to help you along the way. I'm going to disciple you. I'm going to train you. But ultimately, I'm going to step out of the picture. Because he's the one that we're all about. John accepted his position. He knew who he wasn't, and he knew who he was. He was serving the master, bringing him glory, and that is the job of a servant. His focus was not John the Baptist. His focus was not John's little kingdom, John's disciples. His focus was Jesus Christ, building him up, fulfilling his purpose, and that's ours as well. John knew that, John did that, he believed it, and he found joy in leading others to Jesus. Brings us to our last characteristic, servant's heart delights in diminishing, verses 29 through 30. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. The servant of Jesus Christ wants to become nothing so that Jesus can be everything. I don't know Charlotte Webb, Charlotte's Webb, Charlotte and Wilbur develop a close relationship. And as Wilbur grows larger, Charlotte uses all of her resources, everything she does to try to do what? Rescue Wilbur. Her life is about Wilbur. She writes messages in her web to convince the farm's owners that Wilbur is a pig worth saving. I, I cry all the time at that, that part especially. <laughs> the story builds up to the final chapter. It's titled The Moment of Triumph. What is Charlotte's moment of triumph? As the story draws to a close, Charlotte is dying. Wilbur the pig is being judged at the county fair in a pig contest, and she can hear the roar of the applause for who? For Wilbur. It is in that that she finds great joy. Her life was about Wilbur. She finds great joy in knowing that her life has meant the success of another. No one will remember her. No one will remember the things that she has done and the sacrifices that she has made, but she is absolutely satisfied. Author adds, leadership, really discipleship, is about fading away. The great ones willingly move into into irrelevance. 
Charlotte had a mission. She found joy and success of her mission. Her mission was Wilbur. And as he was gaining all the attention, gaining all the applause, gaining all the glory, she's in a barn dying. It's a principle of discipleship. Our goal in life, our goal in ministry is for us to become less and him to become more. That's what it's about. This person dying continually to self so that Jesus Christ can be glorified in everything we do. Making disciples of Jesus. John uses the illustration of the wedding. What's the point of the wedding? He says this is the best man. The wedding isn't about the best man. It's weird if the best man gets up there and be like, hey, check me out. The wedding is about the bridegroom. And John's job was to say, hey, come to the wedding. You're going to meet the bridegroom. That's what it's all about. And now that those people are going there and are there, John's like, I've done my job. My joy is filled. I'm fulfilled. I'm satisfied. Because he completed the task that Jesus had for him, that God had for him. And now Jesus takes center stage. And really, that, that is the task of our life. It's a great fundamental principle of discipleship. My job up here is to have Christ grow in you, not Mark Labaz. I don't want to make little clones of Mark Labaz. That would freak people out. That would just annoy people. I want Christ to increase in you. And that should be our goal for others. And that should be our goal for ourselves. To get rid of this person and have Christ be glorified in everything we do no matter what it is. And so people who meet us and they're like, wow, so that's what Jesus looks like. Remember, going into the Bible college, walking into the, I didn't even know this man, it was President Inman. You guys remember Bill Inman? He's president of New England Bible College. Walked into his door and I, I had no idea what I was talking about. And I just told that man, I said, look, I don't care what I do in life. I just want to tell people about Jesus. Because he changed my life. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. None of us would. And he's the one that needs to increase in our hearts and in our minds and in our ministries. It's not about increasing me, not about increasing our little kingdoms, but increasing his kingdom, his glory, increasing Christ. The goal should be that we fade from view, we decrease and he increases. This is John's greatness. Do you want to become something in the Christian life, become nothing. Live every day for Him. Sin does what? It makes it about us. Sin is saying, I'm going to take this. I'm more concerned with me 
and not you, Lord. We can turn away from sin by turning to him, bringing him the glory. This is a radically different philosophy than the world, isn't it? It's how they're going to know we're Christians because we're not trying to be American idols. We want people to worship Jesus Christ and therefore we make everything about him. I'm sure you guys know these two gentlemen, George Washington and Benedict Arnold. Both were extremely dynamic men of action and had unquestioned personal courage. Both were driven by a passionate ambition from an early age. Both were very capable of inspiring the men that they commanded to acts of extraordinary sacrifice and endurance. Yet despite all these similarities, one of them ended up a traitor and the other the father of his country. It all boiled down to character, boiled down to their heart. It's a case of honor versus a case of glory. George Washington was guided by an indestructible sense of honor. Benedict Arnold was driven by a thirst for personal glory and all the perks that it would bring. Both men hungered for greatness, but to Washington, greatness meant subordination. Subordination of self to a greater cause. To Arnold, greatness meant triumph. Triumph of self over everybody else. Wealth, privilege, and indulgence of personal appetites. Causes for Arnold were merely vehicles to glory. Arnold also had a consistent pattern of insubordination, believe it or not. Excessive drinking and lavish overspending. Because of this, he had to recoup his fortunes through his marriage to a young society beauty named Peggy Shipman. Shippen. Shippen, her connections led Arnold to a young British officer named Major John Andre, who served as a middleman for Arnold's later treason. Ultimately, it was his own nature, his own heart, that was the key to his betrayal. As many real and imagined slights and humiliations piled up on Arnold, he had no core sense of duty or honor to counterbalance these personal grievances. It was all about him. Greatness it was all about him, and as so far as he was concerned, treason was a career move. Bring him into the glory. I like that description of Washington. Greatness meant subordination. For us, it's not a higher cause, but a higher person, isn't it? The question we have to ask ourselves after reading this passage, do you have a servant's heart? It's a question 
And I've been asking myself all week. Not that we won't struggle in these areas, but what we've talked about, are they consistent patterns of living? Because if they are, we have some issues that we need to deal with. Do we easily get jealous at the success and the gifts of others? Do I think that everything that I have done is because of me, that these talents are because I am something special and the fruit and success that I have is because of what I have done and not from God's grace? Do I like attention? Do I think more highly of myself than I ought to? Am I overly sensitive to the critique and criticism of others? Do I find joy in fading from view? Or do I want to be center stage? Do I find joy in leading others to Jesus? Do I want to make disciples of Christ or disciples of myself? We're all Baptists in this church, aren't we? Galilee Baptist Church. Are we Baptist in name or in heart as well? Do we have a heart like John the Baptist? Do you and I have a servant's heart? Father, thank you for the examples of those who have gone before us and knowing that we won't get it right all the time. Hence, the reason for the grace that we need in Christ to continue on striving against these desires to build up ourselves and build up our own little kingdoms to make life about us and not you. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for the times that we have failed in this, Lord. And, and we pray that Jesus' name is glorified here at Galilee, that Jesus' name is increased in this community, that Jesus' name is exalted in our lives. Lord, help us to do this through your grace and strength, we pray in Jesus' name.